Listener Production. Resilience is the ability to cope with unexpected changes and challenges in your life. But how do we master this? Hugh van Kylenberg is the director of the Resilience Project. In 2008, he travelled to India. He wrote of this trip, In this desert community, there was no running water, no electricity and no beds. Everyone slept on the floor of their desert hut. Despite the fact these people had very little to call their own, I was continually blown away by how happy they were. In this conversation, Hugh and I speak about living a life filled with resilience, empathy, vulnerability and gratitude. Gratitude is the ability to pay attention to what you've got, not worry about what you don't have. And we struggle with that in Australia. In fact, the more privileged we are, we more, the more we find ourselves thinking, if I had that, then I'd feel happy. If I had that, then I'd feel happy. If I get this, then I'd feel happy. That's not how happiness works. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Hugh van Kylenberg is a teacher, speaker, and an inspiration to those young and old. Hugh has developed and facilitated programs for over 500 schools, professional AFL and NRL teams, and corporate businesses, changing their philosophy of thinking and educating to heighten their performance. I started by asking Hugh, how did the Resilience Project begin? I was teaching, um, and the reason I went into teaching in the first place was because my little sister battled with mental illness for a very, very long time. She struggled with um, anorexia nervosa. Fast forward a few years, I'm living in, uh, well, I was having a year in India, and I found a school to go and teach in. Uh, the school was in a village called Tixay. In Tixay, there's no running water, there's no electricity, um, there are no beds, everyone sleeps on the floor, very poor community. And I remember when I was there thinking to myself, my gosh, these people are so unbelievably happy. And one kid actually slept on a dirt floor. And at that point, I remember thinking, my gosh, I can't fly home. I need to stay here. I need to stay in this community. Because at that same point in time, my sister was back in, she was really struggling back in Melbourne. She's still battling with this mental illness, which she'd had for a long time. So very long story short, I stayed in the community for it was about four months in the end. And I decided to do everything those people did. I decided to practice what those people practice. And I realized after a few months, they had these simple things that they stopped their day and practiced every day. And I remember being blown away by them. They had a big impact on me. Came back to Australia, wanted to go and tell everyone. So I went back to uni, did my postgrad studies, and all I did was look at the research that sat behind these things that I saw these people doing every day. They practice gratitude, empathy, and mindfulness. If we want to feel happier, if we want to have better mental health, if we want to um, help people who are struggling with a mental illness, if we want to prevent it happening in the first place, we've got to start practicing those three things. When you were with this community, what was it that you saw them do every day? So these people were so good at stopping out and pointing out all the things they had. Just to give that context, when I was there, I was looking around thinking, these poor people, they've got nothing here. They were saying stuff to me, like some of the kids were going, have a look, and they were pointing at their shoes. And they're saying, have a look, and they're saying, we've got shoes. And some of the kids at the school didn't. So the ones that had shoes are saying, look at this. I had kids saying, come and see our playground. They pointed over their shoulders. They said, have a look at this. The swings were there, but they were broken, like someone had torn them apart, basically. They were just dangling. And I thought they were saying, look how bad this is. But when I looked at their faces, I realized they're actually saying, check this out. (laughs) They're going, how lucky are we to have those swings? And that's when I kind of, I remember thinking, my gosh, these people are so grateful. Back home, I have a car, I have a job, I have a nice house. 
I never stop and point at these things and say, check this out, I've got a car. You know, how lucky am I? I've got to go somewhere, yeah, I get in the car. I have shelter. You know, I have food and water whenever I want. I'm sure that these people weren't taught to be grateful. So gratitude is the ability to pay attention to what you've got, not worry about what you don't have. It is a Buddhist community, so I think that's very much ingrained in them just to pay attention to what they've got. And we struggle with that in Australia. In fact, the more privileged they are, the more we find ourselves thinking, if I had that, then I'd feel happy. If I had that, then I'd feel happy. If I get this, then I'd feel happy. That's not how happiness works. Happiness is when you look at what you've already got. So if you're someone who wakes up and goes, I've got shoes in my feet, how lucky am I? You are set up to be a lot happier than someone who is extremely wealthy who says, oh, look what that person's got. If I had a car like that, then I'd feel happy. So I, I believe that was part of their Buddhist teachings, but with the language barrier, it's hard for me to say that categorically, but I'm pretty sure that's what it comes down to. Now, the second part being empathy. I've never met a community of people who do more for other people. They are there for each other. Like that, it's a proper community. They are so connected to each other and we're not here in Australia. We're just not. This- so why do you think they are and we're not? Because of the Buddhist teachings? Well, I think so. There's a survey that's done in the United States, and I think it's happened every year for the last, I think, half a century. The survey is one question, and the question is this. In a real crisis, something goes down in your life, how many people do you have in your life you could turn to? Mm. Now, 30, 40 years ago, the most common answer to that question, it was something like, I can't remember exactly, it was something like 10 or 12 people. In the year 2018, the most common answer to the question, how many people can you turn to in a crisis in America, the most common answer was zero. That is sad. That's really sad. I think a lot of us turn to our phones because we think we're getting our basic psychological needs met. We feel like we belong to something. We feel like we're getting validated. 30 people like a photo, I feel good about myself, all that kind of stuff. It's not real. It's a parody of real life. In a crisis, you're not turning to your followers on Instagram for support. No, and I think we're also scared to be bored. Yeah, and that's a really, really beautiful point. Boredom is really important for us because when you're bored, you learn to be creative. Mm. These days when kids are bored, the temptation is to throw a device in front of them. Now, we use a phone to really dull so many negative emotions. The second, we feel lonely. Now, lonely is an important emotion to feel because when you feel lonely, you are encouraged to go and make connections. That's the only way of solving that problem around being lonely. By the way, there's nothing wrong with feeling lonely. It's a normal emotion. But now, the second we feel lonely, our phone comes out, bang. We're kind of numbing it all now because we get our phone out, yet we stop feeling lonely for a bit. But then we don't have those positive emotions come rushing in. We don't go make real life connections. So, And it does, it brings in all the negative emotions like insecurity. Why didn't I get invited to that party? It's quite detrimental. People are curating the best version of their life and they're sticking them up there. And we compare ourselves to other people and we say, my skin will never look like that or I'll never be that successful in that career or I'll never be sitting around with that many friends looking that happy. The more time we spend there, the more we become uncomfortable the way that with our own insecurities and our own imperfections. And it, it makes us hard to embrace who we are as a person. And I think that's really important to go, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a human. I make mistakes, I stuff up and, and I, I have things I'm insecure about. But Instagram's making it harder to do that. I mean, as adults, we can discuss this and we know what it's like to not have this. But I keep coming back to kids and I think, my gosh, they're now dealing with this stuff that we never had to deal with. And I think it really exemplifies all the problems that we're already really having. As an adult already having Instagram, Facebook, all that social media stuff, do we just take it away? And and for parents that either have kids that may be already on it or are too young, so they're not, what do we do? Because I think a lot of people these days, you know, a lot of kids, their friends are on it, so you don't want them to completely Mm -hmm. miss out because there are obviously some positive aspects of having those social media applications as well. So how do you manage that in yourself and your children? That's a really great question. We're trying to teach people about the benefits of connection and finding a meaning and a purpose in your life. But what I'm finding is one of the things that's 
that's getting in the way of us teaching all this stuff is devices and our addiction to devices. This is one of the big issues. We're saying to our kids, get off your phone, but we're setting terrible examples for them. We're not modeling it. We're on our phones all the time. So um, I think the first thing we need to do as adults is, is start setting a better example for our kids. All these apps, the big social media apps that are free, they work off what's called the attention economy. So the more time you spend in the app, the more time they can charge your advertising. That's their way of sucking you back into the app once you've exited. So turn your notifications off and you decide when you check Instagram. And I'm saying Instagram because to be honest, that's probably the app I've had most problems with in my life. It is a huge problem. It is just... It is. It's massive. Well, what, what they do is social media and internet, it looks like all the basic psychological needs that we need for connection. You know, we need to feel loved, we need to feel validated, we need to feel like we belong somewhere. Our phone looks like this, but they're not real. They're not real connections. It's not real validation, all that kind of stuff. So that's where we've got a really big problem. So gratitude, empathy, mindfulness. Yeah. What can we do in our day-to-day lives to be able to have all those three things? I think it depends a lot on where you're coming from, what your baseline is. So for someone who is listening to this thinking, I've never tried this stuff before. Yeah. If you put aside 10 minutes every day, you'd be able to do it to great effect. To practice gratitude, very simply, it's at the end of the day, it's writing down three things that went well for you. It's not writing three things you're grateful for. It's not writing three unbelievable things you have in your life. It's three things that went well for you. I have someone commented on my shirt today. <laughs> little <laughs> I things. I love that. Yeah, it's, it's little things because a lot of people, when they practice gratitude, they make the mistake. Oh, sorry, I won't say mistake because it will work for some people, but a lot of people will write down three things they're grateful for. Now, if you do that for a week, you'll get to the end of the week and you'll find you're repeating yourself. So you'll say family, friends, food, water, job, house, car. You either feel guilty because you can't think of things or you start repeating yourself. Now, both those two are unpleasant experiences. You get a bit bored or you, you feel guilty. So it doesn't work. People stop after about a week. So if you actually change that to what are three things that went well for me today, every day you have a unique experience. You have a unique, you know, three things that went well. Now, for me, I've already got my three from today. What is it? Is it just the reflection? Well, what it does is it actually rewires your brain so that you become someone who's good at scanning the world for the positives. In Australia, we're seven times more likely to notice a negative than a positive. How's that? (laughs) We're just, we're so easily sucked in by a negative. But when you do this every night, you actually rewire your brain and you become good at picking up the good things that happen. There is so much good stuff happening around us, but we miss it all the time. This simple act, after 21 days, you'll find a bit of a shift where you start to find yourself looking at the positives. And then after six weeks, the changes that start to happen are quite significant. Things like, you know, quality of sleep improves. Um, you become more optimistic. You become more enthusiastic. You have more energy, all these wonderful things. And this is all um, research from University of uh, Massachusetts, UCLA, um, University of Pennsylvania. One of the things that a researcher found, after eight days of doing this, you reduce suicidal ideation. So for someone who's in a really, really dark place, this is really powerful practice after eight days. That's amazing. I'm working with a guy in Shepparton who couldn't get out of bed. He hadn't been out of bed in like two weeks, hadn't been to work in four months. And we started with this. We just And he was having some awful thoughts, which I won't go into now, but we started with this simple practice. And he went to work last week for the first time in four months and he's out of bed and he's doing stuff. This is where we started. Three things went well for him. Well, that's great. That's an easy one for everyone to do. It's, it's, and that's what I love about This yeah. is why we're teaching this stuff because it's really easy. So that's how you practice gratitude. And the empathy piece works really nicely with the mindfulness because mindfulness is about being present. It's about looking out for opportunities Well, I mean, empathy is when you feel what someone else feels. Everyone knows that. It's when you put yourself in someone else's shoes. But the better you are at doing this, the more likely you are to act in a kind way. 
And the neuroscience behind kindness is is extraordinary. You do something nice for someone, your brain releases a hormone called oxytocin. You hold the door open for someone. You shout someone a coffee. You give someone a compliment. Your brain releases oxytocin. That makes you feel really happy. But we are missing opportunities to be there for other people because we're not connected as we used to be. When you start feeling empathy for someone, you know, someone may have annoyed you or done something that didn't quite suit what you wanted. Once you start feeling empathy for them, everything changes. For me, it comes back to modelling again. I think we have to model this stuff to our kids. So if someone cuts you off in traffic, you don't lose the plot. It's They're running really late. They've got a really important job interview. They're going to be late. I mean, it may not be the case, but that's a healthier response. We were at IGA the other day and there was a man out the front and we were a bit late. I said to Penny, I'll be home by six and it was already 6.20 and I'm filling under the pump. So we're rushing and there was a man sitting on a bench and he was selling the big issue. And he said, um, he said, oh, the big issue. And I said, no, thanks, mate. I'm in a hurry. And I'd walk 20 metres and I just thought, no, 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 this is like, I, if I'm going to get up every single day of the week and bang on about how we've got to be kind to people and then we've got to model it. I've just walked past a man who, he's probably trying to, struggling to find a place to sleep tonight. And so we went, I went back with Benji, my two-year-old. We sat next to him. I said, yeah, I'd love to buy a big issue. And um, I chatted, we were there for 20 minutes, but I had a conversation with this man. And it was really not, he was a lovely man. He had an incredible story. Benji thought he was great. He had this big big, huge beard and Benji thought it was great. He sat on Benji. Benji sat on his lap, not the other way around. Benji sat on, <laughs> sat on, his, Benji sat on his lap for a while um, and he was telling me about his kids when they were really young and it was a really nice it's story. Beautiful. And I look back and it was one of the nicest moments of the year. So, And isn't that amazing? It not only affected his life, because I'm sure he had such a beautiful discussion with you and got to meet Benji, but the way that it touched you. So you both, by being empathetic, you were able to feel such a beautiful emotion out of that that is a story that you are now telling me because it was so important. When you connect with someone genuinely, it is so good for everyone involved. And what I want for Benji more than anything is for is to him not to be this blindly, optimistically happy person, but I want him to be someone who feels the full range of emotions. That's all I'm trying to do there is really model that to him. But it's opened me up to stuff like, you know, I'm going to be accountable for this stuff. If I'm telling people, I'm running around the world saying, show empathy and model it. Having Benji has made has held me to account to that and it's opened me up to some beautiful connections throughout the year. It's amazing. Your work is so important. It is. To go back to your first question of where the Resilience Project came from, I'm a primary school teacher and I've been trained to teach kids of a primary age to educate them. I think there's nothing more they need right now in the world than resilience. I think this is the most important skill. So... I reckon I could put together a nice program for primary school kids. That's all it was ever meant to be, to help them prevent these things happening in the first place. Sadly, we now got 24% of primary school kids in Australia who already have a mental illness. So for some kids, you know, for one in four, it's an intervention, but for the other three in four, hopefully it's a prevention. And that's the aim of this program. I mean, it started off as primary schools, but now it's AFL football clubs, it's NRL football clubs, it's corporates. It's a relevant message to all of us. And it's such an easy thing to implement. Going now to talking about meaning and purpose, should your purpose always be about other people? So I think the listeners so far who have heard me talk about how important connection is, they would be excused for thinking I'm talking about having friends and having friendships. That's not just what I'm talking about. I think that we were put here to be there for other people. What's your purpose? It's very simple. It's to help people feel happier. And that is the thing. I didn't really have a purpose, I don't think, till I was 32, 33. I started the Resilience Project when I was 29, 30, but it was really about mental health. But... I think it was only a few years ago I thought, well, my purpose every day is to make people feel happy now. And maybe for people out there listening, does everyone have to have a purpose straight away? No. I suppose you can fine-tune your purpose as you did over a few years. Give me another great example. In the footy club, I had a guy, he said, oh, my purpose is to be the most incredible boyfriend, brother, son I can possibly be. Now, if that's your purpose, 
you might have a bad game of football. You might have a bad three weeks of football. But if you go home, you're giving everything you can to your partner and you're calling your mum and dad as much as possible, calling your siblings to check in with them, you're arranging to catch up with them. I think that's a beautiful purpose. That's a beautiful purpose. And some people are listening going, well, I don't have something I'm passionate about. I'm not saying you need to have one right now, but one of the nice things you can do is you can come up with three action points for your purpose. For example, this young man who said to me, I'm going to uh, make sure the first year players are having the best year or loving the club. Um, his action point is to catch up with all of them away from the football club, every one of them once a month. And it might be something like to make sure my child is flourishing, whatever it is. It can be about your own kids. That's not a selfish thing at all. I think we all, as a parent, you all feel like that is a big part of your purposes. But to find things that remove the focus from you, because we're so eye-centric at the moment, iPod, iPhone, iMusic, iTunes, everything's about me. Um, and we're not very good at connecting with the things around us. And I think having a purpose away from yourself helps us do that. You and I spoke the other day about vulnerability. We did, yeah. I've been very lucky to work with a um, wonderful mentor called Ben. Ben did a lot of work with Andre Agassi. If anyone out there is looking for a good book to read, Open by Andre Agassi, it has sold eight times more copies than any other sports biography ever because it's not really about sport. It's about Andre embracing his insecurities, embracing his imperfections, getting rid of his wig and actually saying, you know, I'm actually a bald man. All these things that he did was because when he finally realized and thought, you know what, it's okay to not be perfect and it's okay to tell people the things that I'm not perfect at. And that's a really enlightening moment for a lot of people when they truly embrace the imperfections that they have rather than trying to cover them up. And I suppose you look at the times in your life where you were truly yourself. If you're really in touch with your vulnerability, then hopefully you're like that every day and you see how much people accept you. I mean, when you were truly yourself, I think you shine. It's what we kind of bond over, really. You have very rich relationships with people when you are happy to make yourself vulnerable. I make myself very vulnerable to my audience every single time. And I think that's why I make, I hope I make good connections with my audience because I make myself very vulnerable. I'm not, I'm not saying to the listeners every time you meet someone, say, hey, I'm not good at this, I'm not good at this, I feel really upset about this, this went to them when I was a kid. But um, it's about not shying away from them and, and being okay with the things that you're not perfect at. And you had an instance on the Today Show, like you were quite vulnerable. I haven't actually told this story before. When I was in grade three and grade four, and this would be hard to believe for people who know that my job is public speaking, when I was in grade three and grade four, I developed this stutter. When I was having a conversation with my friends and I had something really good to say that I knew was going to be funny or was going to be entertaining, I couldn't get it out. Now, I don't know if anyone ever knew that. I don't know if my parents ever knew that. I would just remain silent. I wouldn't try and stutter to get it out. I would just not say anything. And then I remember to myself once thinking three or four years ago, how funny I've got a career as a public public speaker. And when I was in grade three and four, I actually froze and couldn't speak sometimes when I had something good to say. Now it's my job to hopefully try and say good stuff. So I got to Channel 9 Studios, a little bit nervous. It was a very foreign thing. I've noticed I wasn't very good on cameras and that was in the back of my mind. And I sat there and she asked me a few questions and it happened. I couldn't get a sentence out. I couldn't talk. And I was- and this I was, is live on, on TV. It was, it was the Today Show. It was, it was, <laughs> It was 8.40. She said, I want, you're going to be on at 8.40. That's when we get the most viewers, whatever, whatever, whatever yeah. time it was. I don't know what happened. I just, I, I, I literally froze and I ended up saying something totally different. I found a word that I could say. It was an awful moment, but I froze on, on national. I said, I developed my startup. You know, we're all kind of broken in a way. We've all had things happen to us that have shaped who we are. We've all got our stories. And the more people actually speak about their imperfections, the more 
you know, my passion, young kids will go, oh, okay, it's okay to not be perfect. It's okay to have issues. It's okay to have a stutter. It's okay to whatever it is. Mm. And um, you were worried what people think of you and when you realise no one gives it. No. Damn, what, that you have a stutter. Yeah, well, no one knew. Like I said to my, I remember saying to Penny afterwards, my partner, oh my God, my stutter came back and she said, you what? And I told her and she said, you didn't stutter. And I said, no, but I couldn't say what I wanted to say. And we watched the interview again and it was terrible, by the way. It was just shocking. It was the most dry, boring, just hopefully, you know, it's everything I try not to be. That was the, obviously what the interview was. And Ben, the guy I've worked with, said, yeah, that's that's fine. We all stuff up. Like, that's, that's okay. That, that's a very human thing to do. What do you do every morning? Because I know mornings is a big time for everyone and that's when you start processing what's going to happen for the day. And I feel like if you have a good morning from the moment that you get up, then you're on the right track. What do you do in the morning? There's a guy called Dan Hunt, who is a former rugby league player with St. George Illawarra. And he said something to me once, which I loved. He said, win the morning, win the day. And I thought, that's such a sporty thing to say. But I actually was thinking about it when I was having a morning where I was winning the morning. And the rest of the day, just I made healthy choices the rest of the day. Now, we touch on the importance of exercise, sleep and diet in our talks, but most people know that. So we don't spend too much time on it, but you cannot underestimate how important those three things are. Sleep, exercise and diet for mental health. And exercise every day or? Um, the research is saying, I think 20 minutes of activity a day is enough. So it doesn't have to be doing a full on session in the gym. It can be a 20 minute walk. It can be pushing the pram for 20 minutes, half an hour during the day. It can be running around with your kids in the park for 20 minutes. 20 minutes of activity is, is, is really good for our mental health. So when I can exercise in the morning first thing, after that I, I feel good and I think, right, I'm going to have a healthy breakfast now. And I'll choose. Do you do meditation? So, okay, I'm so glad you asked that because we said mindfulness before. We didn't quite go into the specifics, I suppose. And a lot of people think, oh, so it's meditation. I've tried that before. I get bored. I don't really like it. Particularly the sports people I work with, sitting still doing meditation isn't their cup of tea. I've realized since I've started running 400s, for me at the age 38, having played cricket and football, my body is so broken that to do a warm-up, it takes me 45 minutes to do a proper warm-up. I've realized that all I do for that 45 minutes is think about how my body feels. And that's all I pay attention to. And how's my breathing going? I have my heart rate monitor on, so I'm checking my heart rate. All I do is think about how my body feels for 45 minutes. That led me to think this. How many of us are actually doing a mindfulness activity every single day without realizing it? As in, if we made a few adjustments to what we're focusing on while we're doing that activity, or all of a sudden we're doing mindfulness. So there might be a guy out there saying, or a woman saying, I hate doing meditation. But you walk the dog, you take on a 20-minute walk of the dog every single morning. If you change your thoughts while you're walking to how does my breathing feel, if you just did that for the two laps of the block, that's mindfulness. Mm. So I think so many of us actually are so close to doing mindfulness every day, but we're so easily distracted by other things, I suppose. What is the lesson that you think you took the longest to learn? took me a long time to learn this one, that if someone doesn't make you feel good, if someone doesn't make you feel good about who you are or you feel a bit insecure about that person, you don't need to have them in your lives. I think if you can narrow the slot, focus slightly on the people who really make you feel good about yourself, the people that you want to spend your spare time with, the people that love you for exactly who you are. What is a life of greatness to you? A life of greatness is a life where you accept your imperfections and you use them as a way of connecting with people and accepting other people for exactly who they are. It is treating people exactly the same. To me, that's greatness. Hugh, thank you so much. You've been so ever-present and the information that you've given has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you. No, thank you. It's been a privilege to do this. It really has. So thanks for having me. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly. 
where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolic and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.